Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. The political universe is now centered in Georgia. Even once the results are in, Georgia will continue to stay in the national spotlight as the balance of power in the Senate could be left to Georgia voters. The battle for control of the Senate now rests on a pair of high-stakes runoff elections in Georgia. The two parties are tied in terms of control of the Senate, 48 Republican, 48 Democrat. Democrats will need to win both runoffs in order for Vice President-elect Kamala Harris to become the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. And already the gloves are coming off. Current GOP Senator Kelly Leffler tweeted today, I have never backed down from a fight, and I'm not about to start now. These two Georgia runoffs are the two decisive votes, sort of who wins those then is likely to go on to control the Senate. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Elena Schneider on the two Georgia elections that are going to make the next couple months pretty interesting. So Georgia has not voted for a Democrat on the presidential level since 1992. We do have some projections that we can call at this hour. Let's begin. And it's good news now for Bill Clinton. He is the projected winner in the state of Georgia with 13 electoral votes. It last uh, went for a Democrat in 1980. And basically since the 90s, Republicans have been able to control statewide and legislative elections pretty handily. I mean, this is a red state where Republicans have had full control for a number of years. And it's a state that has has basically gone unchallenged, untested until just recently, until the last two or three cycles. We are writing the next chapter of Georgia's future where no one is unseen, no one is unheard, and no one is uninspired. So part of why it's suddenly become a battleground state is for a couple reasons. One is just enormous demographic growth and change and diversification. So Georgia's added something like about a million uh, new residents over the last decade. Uh, A lot of them are people of color. A lot of them are people with college educations. We are writing a history of a Georgia where we prosper together. And another key component to this is black voters. I mean, black voters have really seen an enormous registration growth in recent years. A lot of that can be attributed to Stacey Abrams's work. So she was the Democratic gubernatorial candidate in 2018. We are a mighty nation because embedded in our national experiment is the chance to fix what is broken. Because voting is not a right for some. It is a right for all. And it is not a privilege. Part of what made Stacey so successful was her ability to not only peel off suburban college-educated white voters that we've talked about so frequently in these elections, but she was also able to drive turnout among young people and among people of color, but particularly black people, and not only drive turnout, but also register them to vote. I mean, 800,000 or so people have, have now registered to vote since 2016. Those are new voters that are now in the system. So how this sort of then lands us in this 2020 mix is we had two Senate races in Georgia this year. Incumbent Republican Senator David Perdue will face Democratic challenger John Ossoff. 
while the state's other incumbent Republican senator, Kelly Loeffler, will go against Democrat Raphael Warnock. And so in Georgia, sort of a funny little tweak to their to their state laws is it requires any candidate to get 50 percent plus one just over that 50 percent mark to be able to avoid triggering a runoff. And neither of the Republican candidates were able to do that, which means that we've got two runoffs heading into January 5th. A lot is at stake in these runoffs. If Democrats win, which is a big if, but if Democrats win, they'll have control of of the White House, the House of Representatives, and the Senate, which would be huge for them. What are they doing to try to win these two seats? So in terms of strategies that we're already seeing start to emerge, I I think that it's important to take a moment to look back a little bit at the two coalitions that were formed for both Joe Biden and Donald Trump and how those those coalitions then will inform what the parties are going to try to do in in these runoffs. So for Joe Biden, he was very much able to build upon the playbook that Stacey Abrams set out for him. So he was able to draw enormous support from these suburban counties, places like Cobb and Gwinnett County, which are just north of Atlanta, that used to be bastions of Republican support, are now solidly blue. He was able to do that in a way that Hillary Clinton was not able to do in 2016, really drive support among suburban college-educated voters. But he was able to couple that with strong support among Black voters and drive up participation in urban metro Atlanta, but also in these rural counties where some are majority Black or, or half half Black, half, half white voters, and be able to hold his own in a couple of those rural counties to sort of add up enough of support to just get him over that 10,000 or so vote threshold where he's sitting at right now. And so they've got to be able to turn out low propensity voters, I'm thinking particularly young voters and people of color who don't normally participate in off-year elections or special elections, get them to the polls in record numbers. But they also have another sort of dynamic that's new here, which is that we saw some real ticket splitting. We saw people voting for Joe Biden, but also um, the Republican Senate candidates. That's why the Democrats ran behind, weren't able to get as many votes as Joe Biden in Georgia. And and. I think that part of what these Republican candidates can now run on is a check and balance message, this idea that Republicans will provide a check on Joe Biden's power by maintaining the Senate. Well, let's get into that more. I mean, Republicans have controlled Georgia for decades. These two seats are essential for them for essentially keeping a check on President-elect Joe Biden and the Democratic House. What is their strategy this time around? Like, how do they plan to keep these seats. Republicans are certainly worried and and know that they need to make sure that those white rural voters who turned out for Trump will turn out again, even though he's not going to be on the ballot. And that's a totally open question if that's actually going to happen. And I think that it's it's going to be fascinating to see how and what ways Donald Trump's campaign or how the the, the president himself choose to sort of handle this moment, because if he continues to sort of make the case that he believes Georgia was stolen from him, even though there is zero evidence of fraud, um, and that, that that might actually depress turnout because voters might look and say, OK, well, if it was stolen from us, there's really no hope. And even though there is that risk, we have seen from both Senators Leffler and Purdue a call for the secretary of state, who's a Republican in 
Georgia to resign because of his handling of the election. In a letter Monday, they blamed him for what they called a mismanagement of elections there. Raffensperger disputes that criticism. He says he won't be stepping down and called the election a, quote, resounding success from an administrative perspective. I mean, it isn't just Purdue and Leffler who are calling into question the integrity of the election. You know, as Trump has refused to concede despite Biden's decisive win, Republicans at the highest level have not acknowledged his victory, like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. The president has every right to look into allegations and to request recounts under the law. The projections and commentary of the press do not get veto power over the legal rights of any citizen, including the president. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. Do you think this is a deliberate strategy here from Republicans to fall in line with President Trump's messaging to try to energize that base and get them to show up in Georgia for these two elections? Look, I think that that is certainly part of the calculus that would explain why we're seeing members of Congress and Trump administration officials reacting this way of sort of continuing to give this impression, this false impression that somehow Donald Trump still has a chance here. He does not. He has failed to reach 270 electoral votes. And and it's it's just sort of a matter of time. Um, none of the legal challenges that we've seen him try to move through the courts are seen as legitimate, nor are the, are the recounts likely to change the outcome in a number of these states. So let's just sort of set that as the baseline here. But I think that there is a calculus on the Republican side that they are going to do anything to try and win these runoffs. I think that this is an initial strategy. I don't know if they're going to keep on this road. I think that there are risks and rewards on both sides. The risk is that it alienates people who say, okay, if it was stolen from us once, what's going to change about it this time? Or the flip side is maybe they will rile people up enough to sort of seek revenge, will want to say, okay, this this whole election was stolen from us. Therefore, we need to you know, show up in a way that we can maintain some piece of government. I think a lot of this also still depends on how Donald Trump is going to act. We don't know yet. Um, and there's been conflicting reporting about whether or not he's going to seek more rallies, a space that he loves to be in. I mean, certainly it wouldn't be surprising if he chose to go down to Georgia and rally there every day. You know, campaign rallies are, are part of what he has enjoyed most about being president. And I, I certainly could see that being the case. Um, but we don't know that yet. And how Donald Trump acts in this lean duck period is going to be really fascinating to see what that does in terms of turnout one way or the other. Elena Schneider, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Also today, a growing number of world leaders are acknowledging President-elect Joe Biden's victory in the election last week. As President Trump continued to refuse to concede the election on Tuesday, the president-elect began having conversations with several world leaders, including the heads of France, Germany, Ireland, and the UK, with Prime Minister Boris Johnson inviting Biden to attend the COP26 climate change summit that the UK is hosting next year. The leaders of several other nations, including Japan, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, have also extended their congratulations, though a few, including those of China and Russia, have not. And 
President-elect Biden says his advisors are making contingencies so Americans don't have to worry about losing health coverage or protections for pre-existing conditions during the pandemic, though he didn't specify what his administration would do if the Supreme Court strikes down Obamacare. Speaking just hours after the court heard oral arguments on a Republican-backed challenge to the Affordable Care Act, Biden called the attempt to scrap the law cruel and said that his incoming administration will make sure millions of people don't have to spend the months between now and when the court issues its ruling in limbo, not knowing the status of their coverage, adding that, quote, they shouldn't have to hold their breath and they shouldn't be in that position. Subscribe to Politico Dispatch wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show and want to help out, you can do that by leaving a rating and review in your favorite podcast app and by telling a friend to give us a listen. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.